Finn, and it's a pleasure to be amongst my church family again, and my wife sends her greeting from Indonesia. Uh, she's back uh, holding down the fort. I'm here for a meeting that we're having for a few days this coming week, and then I'll be flying back to Indonesia. Let me read for us from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and then I'll pray for us. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed on his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you might bless the reading and the meditation on your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher now, that your word and your truth would penetrate our hearts and stir us anew with a passion for you and a passion for your glory in this day and age. We commit these next few moments in your hands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you started a series in the book of Acts, and last week Nathan gave us an introductory lesson on uh, sort of setting the table for us of what Jesus has done and how Acts is the works of the Holy Spirit. When I think about the book of Acts and looking back on what Nathan had shared with us, I'm reminded of the statement that Jesus made to his disciples when he said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, when Jesus said that he was going to build his church, it's really interesting because he told us several things in this statement which give us an orientation to what's going to happen in the book of Acts. The first is he said, it's my church. Now, when you look around and you see the visible representation of the invisible church, you're looking at what Christ came to do. He came to call men and women into a relationship with himself to redeem them from their sins and bring them into a new community. But it's his community, not your community. He also said it's something that needed to be built. I find that interesting because I'm completely useless, okay? Don't ask me to like put air in tires, to change the oil. I can cut grass and wash dishes. But apart from that, I'm hopeless, okay? Now, Jesus, though, he's got a plan to build something. He's a builder. 
And it's, a, it's an important effort, so important that he said it's his focus. It's his primary focus that he will come, it's his church, and he's going to build it. And guess what? The thing he builds is going to be incredible. Now, you know, when we build things, it, we're just happy it happens. It, it finishes the job correctly. We have the same number of nails as what we needed. But when Jesus builds something, he doesn't just build it. He's building it to function, to do something. And he says, you know what it's going to do? It's going to be so powerful that his church is going to move into places where Satan rules. And the gates of hell sees the church come here, and the gates of hell pushes back on this church, and you know what happens? The gates of hell collapse. Spiritual powers cannot stand up against the church that Jesus has built and established here on earth. And then Jesus did something incredible. He looked at these disciples of him, 12, now 11, and he says to them in Acts chapter 1, he says, look, I'm building my church, it's going to be victorious, and now I'm leaving and I want you to finish the work. Wow. Incredible, isn't it? Now think about this. You gotta, you gotta put this in the perspective of these disciples. 11 men. Jesus left them with no organizational structure. Okay, he didn't appoint somebody pope. And then he didn't say you're vice pope and you're the secretary and you're the treasurer and here's our session. He didn't give any of that. He said to these 11, you're it, go and do it. Oh, by the way, I'm not leaving you any modes of transportation. I'm not buying you a boat. I'm not giving you horses and a chariot. But I'm expecting you to go to the ends of the earth. Oh, and by the way, there's something else. What is it, Jesus? I'm not giving you any money either. You can do this job with everything Jesus gave you. Jesus established his church with nothing but a few people who believed and were filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the book of Acts. I've spoiled the book for you. The whole book of Acts is a story about people who did what seemingly is impossible with no resources except the one thing they needed, the Holy Spirit. And when I look around at our church, I see a church of men and women filled with the Spirit of God that should be having the same impact on the world that you and I see the disciples having. And so when I look at our passage this morning and reflect on it, I want us to be looking at this saying, what is it that God wants me, his church, in this place, in this day in history, to do for his glory? Because everything you need, plus more, has already been given to us. And when we look at this passage, I want us to look at four items that you see on your screen here. Jesus says to his disciples, there's something I want you to know, there's something I want you to have, there's something I want you to be, and there's something I want you to do. And when we, the church, understand, believe, and apply these things to our lives, this city is going to be transformed. He starts by saying, there's something I want you to know. Now, it's interesting for me because Jesus, after he died, he rose again, he appeared, people saw him, you would think, great, I'm going back to heaven. You know, the earth is nice, I created it, but you know what? Heaven's a whole lot better. I'm going up there. 
But Jesus didn't do that. He stayed around for 40 days to do something. Well, in this case, he stayed around for 40 days to tell something, to inform his disciples about something that's really important, that was worth delaying his going to heaven for. And what was it that was so important that Jesus had to do? The first is, Jesus had to tell them about his death. Now, repeatedly in the scriptures, Jesus teaches about his death. In fact, four times, Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, they're gonna crucify me, but on the third day, I'll rise again. Repeatedly, Jesus instructed his disciples about this truth, but yet it just didn't compute. They couldn't understand what Jesus meant by it. But then when Jesus died, the disciples witnessed Jesus being crucified, hung on the cross, they felt the cold, lifeless body of Jesus as they prepared it for burial and put it in a, in a tomb. They understood that Jesus had died, and at this point, the disciples needed to know something. They needed to know that the death of Jesus was not a tragedy, but the death of Jesus was a triumph. Amen. This was the plan of Jesus all along. His plan was to come and to die because without the death, without the blood, there was no atonement for sins. And so Jesus' death was plan number one. But the disciples needed to understand the content of the gospel message that Jesus died as a sacrifice for sin to redeem men and women to himself. They also needed to understand that Jesus rose from the dead it says in our passage that for 40 days, he gave them proof about his resurrection. They needed to know that the resurrection of Jesus was not just some fantasy, some tale that was created to please people. But in fact, this was the glorious truth that Jesus was no longer dead. The grave could not hold him. He came back to life. And the disciples for 40 days got proof positive by seeing Jesus walk through walls and seeing Jesus eat fish and hearing Jesus teach and Jesus was present among them and as he was present among them, he gave proof after proof after proof so that these disciples could go into the world with confidence that the gospel message was believable, was true, and was world-changing. But Jesus did another thing during these 40 days. He also instructed them about the kingdom of God. Now, I'm sorry, but I know the disciples probably didn't go to school very long. They were fishermen, they were tax collectors, they, they were re rebels, you know, but they, they just kind of seem a little bit dense to me at times. Now, remember, Jesus, he came and started teaching. The very first sentence of his ministry was, repent, for the kingdom of God is among you. And now for three and a half years, the disciples have heard Jesus teach about the kingdom and the parables about the kingdom. And other people heard the parables, they didn't understand it. But Jesus did what? Jesus explained the parables to the disciples. They were getting a master class, a PhD program in what the kingdom of God is like. But they just don't get it. They still can't figure it out because Jesus, not only did he come preaching the kingdom, but he taught them to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And I'm sure there was lots of confusion amongst them. Is it here? 
or is it coming? And the answer is yes. It is here and it is coming. It's here, how do I know? Because God is moving into the lives of people and transforming them, it's here. But in one sense, there still isn't the ultimate victory of the final defeat of death, the final defeat of Satan, and we're waiting for those days to come. And so Jesus, after instructing his disciples for three and a half years, and you know, the final six months of that was a personal, intense course teaching the disciples as they meandered their way from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. They got class after class, instruction after instruction, and then the minute Jesus went on the cross, they all fled away. They didn't get it. They still couldn't grasp what Jesus meant by the kingdom that was coming, the kingdom he was establishing. And so Jesus now gives them an intensive course, a crash course. This is the YouTube version of Jesus' gospel ministry. For 40 days with his disciples in his resurrected body, instructing the disciples about his mission, about the kingdom he came to bring. And then after 40 days, he gives again a one question, final exam to his disciples. One essay question, all you have to do is answer in a single sentence. And Jesus has already told them what was on the exam and they still all failed it. Verse six, they ask him, Jesus, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They don't understand that the kingdom isn't for this time, but it's for a time yet to come. They don't understand that the kingdom is not earthly, but it's spiritual. They don't understand the kingdom isn't for the Israel, but it's for the world. It's a worldwide kingdom. They had one question to ask, and they failed. They got the wrong, the wrong noun, the wrong verb, and the wrong adverb. A total face palm, as we would say. Jesus wants them to know this. He wants to correct them. He wants to bring them into a full understanding. And he says, look, you're not going to get it until you get the Holy Spirit. And the Father's going to come. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. And then it's going to start making sense. And you're going to start getting on with the work that I've called you to do. And Jesus wants them to know about his intention. His intention is for as the Spirit to be given for you and I to complete the work that he's called us to do. I love the way the book of Acts begins in verse one. In the first book, so Luke has written two books, right? The Gospel of Luke and now the, the, the Acts of the Apostles, all written by the same author to the same person, Theophilus. In the first book he converts, the second book he now is, is instructed in what to do. Once you know the truth about Jesus, you're instructed in what to do. And it says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The Gospel of Luke isn't the book that's finished with the resurrection of Jesus. That's all that he began to do. It means that the book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do. And what does he continue to do? He continues to build his church through you. So Jesus wants his disciples to know his intention. He is going to the Father, he is returning to heaven. He will be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will now leave the work of building the church to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus says, there's something I want you to know. That this church is now being built through all of you who are sitting here today. But he says something else. He says, there's something I want you to have. In order to do this job, you need to have the power to do it. And that's why he says, he says, don't depart from Jerusalem because you have to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is a promise that God gave to them, that they will have the Spirit, they will have the power to do the work. Now, it's interesting because Jesus in the Great Commission said, all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus has already given us the authority to do the job. He says, you go to China, and you're not breaking the law because you come with the authority of the King of Kings to proclaim this gospel. You go to Iran, you go to Saudi Arabia, you go to India, you go to Japan, you go to the ends of the earth. With my authority, I'm the one sending you. However, Going with authority and having power are different things. They have the right to be there, but now Jesus is giving them the resources to do the job. You have the authority to do it, now you have the resources. And when you get the Spirit, you're now given the power to go and to stand and to make a witness, a testimony for Jesus in these places. And Jesus says, you can't do the job without what I'm giving you. And what I'm giving you is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God himself resides now in each and every one of us. Now, this word power is really interesting to me. It comes from the Greek word dunamis. It sounds a lot like the word dynamite. In fact, when Alfred Nobel created dynamite or discovered dynamite, he named it after this Greek word for power, dunamis. So each and every one of you sitting here today each and every one of you who believe in Jesus has the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You are dynamite. You have the power to go into the hardest situation, face the most difficult obstacles, and you have the power to stand there for Christ and make a difference to change completely the situation. Now, should I take a quick poll? How many of you woke up today and looked in the mirror and go, dynamite for Christ? Is that, was that you? Was that you this morning? You were, I'm it. I'm going to change this city of Annapolis for Jesus because I am filled with the Spirit today. Is that how you felt? Very few of us probably did, huh? I know sometimes because I travel so much. I live my life basically in a state of jet lag. It's been really weird this not traveling since, this is the first trip I've made since March. And sometimes I feel like I should just go to the airport just for the fun of going to the airport because I miss it so much. But sometimes I'll go into a place and I'll arrive in the middle of the night and the room is dark and I have to get up and it's still dark and I literally, I can't remember which side of the bed to get out of. And I'm so disoriented. It happens repeatedly to me now as I'm feeling around dark rooms in different countries trying to discover where I am. And now I'm not traveling and I'm sitting at home thinking, I feel like I've got no power. I feel like my life is, is, is spinning its wheels. That God has called me and equipped me and has asked me to do something, but, but there's nothing being done. Maybe some of you today are struggling with your Christian life where you say, I love Jesus, I believe in him, I've committed my life, I'll pay any price for him, but I just don't feel powerful. When this whole idea of power, to be filled with the Spirit, comes from this idea of being 
overwhelmed with something? Have you ever felt so sorrowful in your heart that you just couldn't eat, you couldn't sleep? Or perhaps some of you young people were so infatuated with another person, you're overwhelmed with emotion that you can't think of anything, but does she like me, does she like me? Should I ask her out? Oh no, I, don't, I just don't know what to do. Well, that's the same word that's being used here to describe being filled with the Holy Spirit. It means that the Spirit of God is so overwhelming your heart, so filling your life that it's controlling your thoughts and your actions. And Jesus is saying that I want you to have this spirit. I want you to be so overwhelmed with the power of God in your life, your thoughts are about him, your actions are about him, your life's ambitions are about him, that you as my church are controlled day by day, moment by moment, thinking about what does God's spirit want me to do in this situation. Because without that, you can't build the church of Jesus Christ. It's remarkable to me to think these 11 fishermen and tax collectors and rebels, these 11 men who had no theological training, who had no resources, but once they were given the Spirit of God, these ordinary men could do extraordinary things. These ordinary men that were so afraid that they locked the door in the upper room that Jesus had to walk through a wall in order to meet his own disciples. That these same cowards failures who denied Jesus at his trial could weeks later stand before the temple crowd on Pentecost and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. If you're feeling today that you're, I just can't do it. Jesus says that's exactly what you should be feeling. You can't do it. And that's why I want you to have something. That's why I want you to have the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit takes ordinary people. That's a nice way of saying. That takes people who are failures, who are broken, who are not functioning the way they can be, whose marriages are a mess, whose kids are a mess, whose careers are a mess, whose personal lives are a mess, whose hearts are filled with sin. And he takes people like that who we call ordinary and makes you do extraordinary things. And that's the Holy Spirit that's in your heart this morning. That's the Holy Spirit that's filling this church so that you and I can go out and change this world for Christ. Amen. He says, I'm giving you the Spirit because there's something I want you to do. Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. I find that really interesting because Jesus didn't say to his disciples that you will be my Bible study leaders. He didn't say, you will be my theologians. So many times I talk to Christians and they say, oh, I can't talk about Christ to others because I don't know enough yet. I have to learn more first. I find that really interesting because the Samaritan woman meets Jesus at the well in John chapter four, puts her faith in Christ, and then immediately goes into the town and brings a whole town out to meet Jesus. What did she know? She just knew Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus never called you to be a theologian. He doesn't ask you to memorize the Westminster Confession of Faith. Jesus doesn't expect you to know everything in the Bible, but Jesus expects you to take the Holy Spirit that he's given to you and use it. Jesus doesn't ask you also to be people who pro pro predict the future. 
I was always amazed growing up, you know, horoscopes, you'd open up the newspapers, they were actually, for you young people, they were paper with words on it that you'd get every day in your house. We would open up the newspaper and they'd have your horoscope. People always trying to wonder what will happen in the future. And then you come here, I moved to Annapolis after living in Indonesia for 20 years. I moved to Annapolis and I go to the Annapolis Mall thinking I've left behind the third world countries of all these spiritual beliefs and I come to Annapolis and there's fortune tellers in the Rundle Mill Mall. And I'm like, who goes to them? Well, apparently a lot of people because they're lining up. People are fascinated with the future, aren't they? These disciples are fascinated with the future. They're trying to ask Jesus, is this the time now? Is this when it's going to happen? You said soon the Holy Spirit's going to come. This must be the glorious coming Messiah kingdom. And you know what? In the church, we still spend all our time trying to be future predictors. How many of us, when the COVID virus first started becoming known in February and March, how many churches, how many Christians, how many people, seminar, talk after talk, is this the end times? Well, let me tell you something. I sure hope Jesus is coming back today, okay? I hope, it's, I hope before we get done with the sermon, he's already come back. But Jesus doesn't want us to be preoccupied with predicting the future. He didn't tell his disciples, I'm coming back soon. Just keep watching. Keep predicting. It'll be really interesting conversations in the temple as you're trying to talk about when I come back. He didn't say that. He said, I want you to be something. He didn't say, I want you to be experts in theology. He didn't say, I want you to be experts in predicting the future. He said, I want you to be witnesses. A witness is simply somebody who says what they know and shares what they experience. And that's why Jesus said, I want you to know something. I died and I rose again. And every Christian needs to be a witness to that truth. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, this is the gospel that I preach. Jesus suffered, died. After three days, he arose again for the forgiveness of sins. That's what it means to be a witness. It means you and I go into the world, live among the people, go about our daily activities with our children in school, with interfacing with teachers, people in our offices, in our careers, uh, to our neighbors, and we tell them, we witness to them that Jesus did die and Jesus did rise. And then we share, share the experience of what I was like and how I met Christ and what that means for me going forward now in my life. And it can also mean the same for them. And Jesus has called you and I to be these witnesses, to take this gospel message to the people around us. So here's my question. This church of a thousand people, love the Lord, knows our Bibles. We go to Bible study fellowship, we have Sunday school, we listen to sermons online, we read books, we know our Bible, we know Jesus. We hear the gospel preached to us every week in this church. Here's my question. Why is it we have so few adult baptisms in this church? Why is it we virtually have no adults converting to Christ as a result of our evangelism? That's the question we need to be asking. How are we being a witness for Christ? Because when you witness for Christ, you see results. I work with Muslims. Every year, 
A hundred people that I send out across the country can share the gospel with more than 25,000 Muslims individually, person by person, and give them an invitation to receive Jesus. Then we count it as evangelism. And of this, every year, we're baptizing more than 1,000 new believers from Islam. So if I can do that with Muslims in a restricted country, what's going on here in Annapolis, folks? We should be having a baptism every week. And I think the problem comes down to two. The first problem could be a spiritual problem or it could be a skill problem. Every reason why we're not being a witness for Christ comes down to these two things. It's either spiritual or it's a skill. We either don't believe what Jesus said about the gospel. We either don't believe that he's building his church and he's building it through us, so we just figure, I'm in, that's enough. Or we don't believe that Jesus is the one and only way of salvation. We figure, well, that's a good way too, and that's as long as you believe something. Or we don't believe that we can tell the gospel to people in a loving way that's engaging so that they will respond to it. Or we don't believe that the Holy Spirit will work when I share the gospel so that they will believe it. We have excuse after excuse after excuse, but the core root is a spiritual problem in your heart. You're not sold out for Jesus. You've decided that you want the world and you want Jesus. And Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. And until the church is willing to believe the gospel fully and live it out in the community, we're just not going to see the kinds of things that Jesus wants to do through our church. But it could secondly be another problem. It could just be you don't know how. I'm amazed at how many people go to church their entire life and never have learned how to tell the gospel to somebody else. It's totally doable. It's not hard. We find uneducated farmers able to tell the gospel to others. We find food vendors on the side of the road who only have a second grade education able to lead people to Christ. Why? Because we trained them to do it. We sit them down and we share the gospel with them. Now we say, you tell me the gospel. No, that's wrong. Try this. We, we correct them. And then we go five kilometers away, five miles away to another part of the town. And we say, now tell the gospel to these people. And when he gets really good at it, and we say, now go home and tell it to your family. And through this, the gospel is spreading from them to their own communities, to their friends, families, acquaintances. And the gospel's taking root. In one area, we shared the gospel with the head hoodlum in the marketplace. And, you know, we have gangs taking in the markets. They, they get commissions and cuts on everything. And, well, one of our church planners went into the market, goes around sharing the gospel, and, of course, the person that comes to faith is the main hoodlum, the gang leader of this marketplace. And so we train him like this. We say, now take the gospel, let's go out and practice. And he takes it and he's practicing with others. And when we say, okay, now gather your friends and families around and start telling them the gospel. Well, who's the friends of the head hoodlum in the marketplace? All the other gangsters in the marketplace. So he gets them together, and of his nine gang members, eight of them accept Jesus. Amen. And they begin to train, and they begin to spread the gospel to others. 
And the gospel starts going out and spreading amongst gangsters and amongst their networks because it's natural. And each and every one of us sitting here might think, oh, I'm afraid to do evangelism. I think a lot of people are afraid because they just don't know how. Once you get experience in doing it, it's easy. But in order to get experience, you got to start with the easy stuff. So I want you all to do a homework assignment. When you go home, in your families, or with your friends, or in your Bible study, I want you each to make a list of 15 names. Family members, co-workers, neighbors, the easy people, not the hardcore atheist. I want you to find the easy people in your life that you already know of who don't believe in Jesus. I want you to make a list of those names. And every week, I want you to focus just on two names. And you pray for those names, and you have, a, you have an intentional plan that I'm going to call them on Wednesday, I'm going to get together with them, I'm going to tell them the gospel. And you go through your list of names. And if we did that, in one year, this church would have shared the gospel with 15,000 people in this place, just in one church, by just doing the easy work that God's already equipped us to do. Jesus says, there's something I want you to know. You're my building program for the church. I have no other plan. And to do that, I want you to have something, the Holy Spirit, the power to do it, so that you can go out now and do the work of being a witness. Now go and do it. Go to Jerusalem. Where's your Jerusalem? It's right here. It's the people around us. It's Annapolis. It's Anne Arundel County. It's the people that live in close proximity to us here, who are like us in every way. They go to the same schools, they shop in the same stores as us. They are like us, it's just they're not in the church. Go to your Jerusalem. It's a remarkable to me because Jerusalem is the place of Peter's greatest failure. Everybody in Jerusalem knew that on the night Jesus was arrested that he denied Christ three times. In fact, to a little girl. You want to talk about someone who feels like a failure. But then what happens? Jesus on Pentecost is proclaiming the gospel in the most public place before the entire city and 3,000 people except Christ. How did that happen? The Holy Spirit transforms him to being a witness and he sends you first right to where your biggest failure was. I can't share with my brother. You don't understand the way I treated my brother growing up. Oh, yeah, I understand. I have a brother, too. And you know, I can't, I can't share the gospel with my, my wife's family because you don't know what I've done to my wife, and her whole family knows. That's exactly where God wants you to come with the gospel because it's not you. You come to him saying, look, I'm a failure, I'm a wreck, but guess what? God has done a work in my life, and he can do a work in yours as well. He sends you first to your Jerusalem. Then he says, go to Judea. Go to Samaria. Judea and Samaria are places that are a little bit further away, but are distinct in two things. Judea is people like us that live further away, and Samaria are people that aren't like us that live a little bit further away. And Jesus is saying, I want you to go out away from where you're comfortable and find people that talk like you, eat like you, sleep like you, act like you, and minister to them, but don't forget the others around there that aren't like you. 
It amazes me how proud people are in Annapolis that we don't have a metro system linking us to Washington, D.C. It, it amazes me. We have no train. You know, we've got the train line, the mark line running up to Penn Station in Baltimore. We're so happy that it goes Baltimore, D.C., but Annapolis is not on that route. You know what? I, I believe that if Jesus was mayor of Annapolis, the first thing he would do would be to build a high-speed train to Washington, D.C. The second thing would be a high-speed train to Baltimore so that he could immediately get there and preach the gospel as much as possible. Why is it that we look at our Judea and Samaria and Samaria and go, oh, we don't like those places. They come here, they you know, come here, spend some money, but don't live, don't get involved in our lives here, in our communities, because you stay there. We like our nice, sleepy area. Church says, I've been given the Holy Spirit to be a witness. God wants me to go to Judea. I need to go to Washington, D.C. because I'll tell you, if there's ever a city on the face of the earth that needs a gospel, it's Washington, D.C. And God put you in Annapolis to go reach Judea. And God says, go to Baltimore. That city needs a revival. It needs help. And only the gospel can answer it. Go. Why is it that we're so content and so happy just for our Jerusalem? We'll do a little bit as close as possible and think, wow, we've done a great job. Go to the ends of the earth. You know what's remarkable to me in this passage? It's this one little word. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Did you see that? He didn't say Jerusalem or Judea. He didn't say Samaria or the ends of the earth. He says, while you're reaching Jerusalem, go reach Samaria. And while you're reaching Judea, go and reach the ends of the earth. You do it all together, church. It's not a multiple choice question. Choose one of the following. It's choose and do all of the following because that's the program that Jesus has given us in the church. Now get on with it. And after he said that, the most incredible thing happens. Jesus gives us instruction, then up into heaven he goes. And the clouds cover him, and he's no longer visible. And you know what the disciples are doing? They were just given this commission to go and proclaim the gospel. And what are they doing? They're standing there staring up in the sky. Oh, Peter, you see that? I think that's Jesus' feet. Oh, no, that was just clouds. You know, they sometimes make a new shape, you know. And angels over there. There it is, there it is. Oh, no, no, that was just an airline jet streaking by. Oh, where is he? Where is he? Come on, he's got to come back soon. In the midst of their sky-gazing, Looking up to heaven, God, finally in heaven, says to a couple of angels, hey, go down there and talk to them. They're so busy staring at heaven that they're doing no earthly good. Earlier in this passage, they were so focused on the earth, on this kingdom that they were wanting to be restored here and now, they were doing no heavenly good, and now they're being so spiritual, they're doing no earthly good. And Jesus is calling us, to take the mind of Christ through the power of the Spirit, move into the world where we live, where he sent us, where he's placed us, to shine the light of the gospel in the darkness so that men and women will come back and his church will be built in you and through you for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've called us to be your church at this day in history. We thank you that you're at work in the world around us, and we know that you will do a great and mighty work to bring men and women back to you. 
Father, pour out your spirit anew in our hearts. Light them on fire with a passion for the gospel, with a desire to see our friends and family and neighbors committed to hearing the gospel and coming to faith in you. Father, we commit our church in your hands and ask that you would work through them to glorify your name in Annapolis, in D.C., in Baltimore, and to the ends of the earth. Amen.